Bienvenidos. Welcome to episode four of Your Healing Nature, a weekly podcast about how Black, Indigenous, people of color are reclaiming the outdoors to heal individual and or collective trauma. I'm your host, Brenda Besa, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Parker McMullen Bushman. Parker is Chief Operating Officer and co-founder of Inclusive Journeys, founder of Echo Inclusive Strategies, and creator of Queen Work. In this episode, Parker shares her root story, the process of reclaiming the outdoors via the legacy of her ancestors, her passion for changing outdoor narratives, the innovative work she's doing via Inclusive Journeys, and so much more. Just a quick FYI, about halfway through the episode, you'll hear some knocking. Those are Parker's children, and it just goes to show that she's a super shero as she juggles motherhood and like three different businesses that are working to save the planet. Yet, she still made time to share her story with us. Enjoy. I am delighted to be in conversation with Parker McMullen Bushman. Parker is Chief Operating Officer of Inclusive Journeys, founder of Echo Inclusive Strategies, and creator of Queen Work, which stands for Keep Widening Environmental Engagement Narratives. Parker is a dynamic speaker and facilitator that engages organizations in new thinking around what it means to be a diversity change agent. Parker's background in the nonprofit leadership, conservation, environmental education, and outdoor recreation fields spans over 24 years. Her interest in justice, accessibility, and equity issues developed from her personal experiences facing the unequal representation of people of color in environmental organizations and green spaces. She tackles these complex issues by addressing them through head-on activism and education via various platforms. In Parker's role as COO, she oversees the core operational functions of Inclusive Journeys, a tech company with a mission to create data-driven economic incentives for businesses to be more inclusive and welcoming, resulting in safer spaces for people who regularly experience discrimination. Parker also leads several committees that focus on diversity and environmental fields. She sits on the board of Environmental Learning for Kids, Metro Denver Nature Alliance, the Next 100 Coalition, and the National Association for Interpretation. And this is just a small fraction of what she does. Welcome, Parker. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Uh, to be here today. And Rena, I, I need you to always read my bio because <laughs> your voice is amazing. Oh my goodness. I love that. Thank you. So sweet. Thank you so much. <laughs> you know, when I first laid eyes on your Queen Work Instagram account, I immediately like you spoke to me and it resonated. And I knew that I had to have you on the podcast. And I think that you're such an amazing storyteller and your content is by far the best I've seen on Instagram. And I'm not just saying that. I think that you have this talent for in such a short amount of time, right? That you're given on a reel. There's just such a way in which you masterfully communicate such deep content in such a short amount of time. And in a way that is so 
I think what I respect and admire so much about you is that you're an unapologetic storyteller and you have this just beautiful way of engaging the community. Um, and it gives me chills, even as I say this, right, because I've heard every single story, read your posts and the audience reaction to it and the way they share and are so open about engaging in these difficult conversations is so just beautiful to me. Thank you so much. Uh, your words are really um, uh, uplifting and humbling at the same time. Um, and I am really honored to, to hear that I have that um, effect for some people. As Parker starts to share her root story, she centers the importance of her ancestors, as she is a descendant of the Gullah Geechee people who were forcibly moved from West and Central Africa in the late 17th century to work as slaves in the plantations of North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. Her ancestors knew the land as slaves, sharecroppers, and later as landowners. She shares with us how her ancestors' legacy and history has allowed her to reconnect to her self-image as an outdoors person. You know, it's so interesting to talk about um, what has gotten me here today, right? Because it is like uh, when you watch uh, a superhero show, not that I'm a superhero, but when they tell the origin story, there's like that one thing like the acid bath or the radioactive thing that comes and then suddenly they've come into their power, right? And I feel like um, I've got so much that I, I carry with me. Um, you know, I grew up, well, I start, when I talk about my connection to nature, I do start with my ancestors. I start with my mother. And uh, my mother, she's passed several years now, but she grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, and my family lived uh, and still lives today uh, on this, this road on an island in Charleston, South Carolina, where all of my relatives kind of line this road. And this is where my mom grew up. And it small Southern town, but she got a lot of exposure to the outdoors. It was coastal, right? Played around in marsh, uh, you know, on the farm area. And then when she got older though, she, she moved away. She first went to, uh, uh, she was at a boarding school in Vermont and then she moved to New York to the Bronx and that's where she met my dad. Um, they ended up having three kids and raised us in, in the Bronx, in the city, right? And I think if you think about those two environments, uh, Southern, you know, South Carolina, uh, Marshland, uh, and New York, they're like really different. But my mom brought her own ancestry with her, and it was really important for her to get us into outdoor spaces. Um, and so when I think about, okay, my career, 24 year career in conservation, natural resources, the work that I do now through queen work, um, 
even though it didn't look like a lot of people's beginnings, because a lot of folks will say, I went camping, you know, when I was a kid and we did all of the, these things, it didn't look like that, but we were in the city and we would go for walks and I would walk with my dad to pick up aluminum cans because you could turn them in for money. And I've noticed like the insects and, um, the trees encased in concrete. We would have picnics on the uh, on the field at the Bronx Community College. And we had these experiences outside that I think gave me a real sense of place. Um, but even though I was gaining all of that, my connection, like a, a visual uh, connection to outdoor, the outdoors was kind of dormant, like this, like that I would say that I was an outdoorsy person that was dormant within me. There was a seed that was planted by that time with my mom. Um, but I didn't think of myself as outdoorsy. I didn't think of myself as a conservationist, even though, you know, as poor people, like we we're poor. And we did a lot of conservation because you had to, to survive, right? But I didn't, those words did not apply to me. And I did not know that this was a career, right? So uh, fast forward, you know, I go to school, um, start going to college. I had been a camp counselor, like I got involved in my local 4-H program when my family moved from New York down to Georgia, which is where my dad is from. When I was going, um, I think I was going into high school or uh, my last year of middle school, we moved down to South Georgia and suddenly everything's different, right? And I go to um, 4-H, I did some summer camps. I decided I wanted to be a doctor because I still, you know, didn't have that connection. I go to school, I do my first year uh, in pre-med and immediately flung out. Like I could not do um, the math. Um, and so I, I left that program and kind of wandered around for a while. I did, uh, I decided to do anthropology um, and I get out of school and I don't know what to do with myself. And I remember my first job as a camp counselor and decide to go back and work as an environmental educator at a camp, because that's what I knew while I figured my life out. And so I was doing that for a little while, still not making connections that this was a career. Um, and after a while, someone, you know, said to me, they were like, you know, like this, this could be your job. You could be doing this, right? And I had to bring these things into, um, I had to work on my own image of myself as an outdoors person. Like, am I outdoorsy? Can I make this a career? Like, is this me? And I had to realize that, wait a second, I've had this connection to the outdoors in me this whole time, but because we called it something different, like it just wasn't, and because we did different activities, um, it was hard for me to realize that this was a, a role for me. So it took a while. 
And all these little moments along the way kind of blossom into this understanding that, oh, like, not only is, am I like good at this type of, of work, but this work is my legacy. Like not only from those little times in the Bronx, but my family connection to that land in South Carolina, my family's Gullah Geechee, right? Having lived on that land for generations and had worked the land as slaves and sharecroppers and then eventually coming to own portions of the land and embedded, felt the land, knew the land, that that was my legacy and that I might call it something different, what I do in the outdoors, but it's the same thing and still is valid. Parker's reclamation of her ancestors' legacy as people who felt the land, worked the land, and knew the land led her to establish a thriving career in conservation and as a highly sought-after consultant and trainer on all matters related to justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in the outdoors. As we continue the conversation, I ask her to take us on a journey of her evolution from a young professional in conservation to the creation of queen work, eco-inclusive strategies, and inclusive journeys. Yeah. So, you know, it definitely was a journey for me and a coming to understand myself and the work that I was doing. I as I, I went into this field first as a, oh, this is something to do. Like when you're an environmental educator at a residential learning center, you go in and they house you, you get food, you get housing and you get a paycheck, not that much of a paycheck, but you get a paycheck. And so it was a holder, a placeholder for me. And I was doing it for a little while and I loved it. I love being outdoors, I love teaching the kids. Um, I love connecting with the kids. And, you know, I realized that while doing this work that there wasn't a whole lot of representation, not a whole lot of people that looked like me. And the connections that I was able to make with students that did look like me, you know, stu students would come on these trips their class trips, oftentimes schools in like, I don't know, between fourth and sixth or seventh grade will take kids on an overnight to an environmental education center, depending on where you live, where they'll do science lessons, get out in the ecosystem. Uh, but in those places, there's not a whole lot of folks that look like me, right? And so at one point I'm like working in South Georgia and starting to make a realization that maybe this could be a career for me, but I had this interaction with a student who came from Atlanta. The school was mostly black and we're walking on the beach and a student runs up to me with a handful of, of shells, beach shells. And he was like, excuse me, miss, excuse me, uh, how much I gotta pay for these shells? And um, you know, I told him, I was like, you, you don't have to pay anything. Like it's nature. It's like free. Like this, this is for you. And this like understanding that, wow, you know, there are so many, like, I didn't know that it was for me or that I could connect to it. 
there are so many little kids, little Parkers out there that also do not know and understand. They don't have anyone who can empathize. They don't have anyone who grew up in similar situations to be like, no, I know what it is. Like you, you think everything costs, you don't realize, right? And how can we um, make that connection? And I started thinking, I think I started making a shift because up until then it was like kind of a job and I was looking for the next thing. And then I started thinking about, wow, there's like a difference that I could make. Um, and there were some, there were some like years, I think in that where, you know, when I dive into something, I'm like, I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna be my best. And a part of that to me was a, a letting go of a little bit of myself because I thought that, okay, if I'm gonna be outdoorsy and provide representation, maybe I need to mimic with these folks who up in like for a long time, even growing up as a kid, I thought outdoors meant white folks, right? Like I thought those hiking, biking, all of that was like was white folks activities. And so I had this bit of time where I felt like I needed to change myself a, a bit to do my job well, and that I had to act in a certain way that kind of aligned with the traditional image of someone in the outdoors. And so I went through that. I went from not really thinking of it as a job to being like, I can maybe make a difference here, but in order to make a difference and to do my job well, I've got to, you know, get my fleece and I got to act this certain way and I better memorize all the scientific names of all the trees. Um, and that was a journey for a little while. And then I, um, that I decided to go back and get my master's. I was like, okay, I'm doing this work. I'm gonna go back, get my master's of science and natural resources and really figure out uh, this. And I started to study, um, I did a, a project about watershed education and uh, community engagement and supporting teachers in watershed education on the Eastern shore of Virginia. And, as I did my work, I also started to study about and think about inclusive science communication and how do we communicate in a way that is authentic to all community members and started to realize that, wow, there isn't just one way to come to these experiences. And we oftentimes take, you know, we have predominant culture that looks at a certain way of doing things and says this this is the way that you got to do it but there's deep ancestral knowledge that comes from lots of different cultures that are not represented right that in uh cultures that people bring in just being themselves in the situation and we say that there's one way to experience things whether it's the outdoors science whatever and so I started to think about that and do lots of research around this kind of di divide that we see, the disparities that we see in conservation and outdoor recreation and thought, you know, wow, like I can make a difference, but really the best difference that I can make is, or, or the way I can make the most impact is by showing up as myself. And 
by being very authentic to this work and by you know, really researching what are, what are the reasons that we've gotten to where we are today. And so around that time is when I formed Eco-Inclusive and really started diving into this work of inclusion and equity in outdoor spaces. Um, started to think about the ways that I could show up authentically as myself in these spaces and provide representation. I did eco-inclusive for several years doing trainings, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings for conservation-based organizations. Um, and then, you know, social media <laughs> has, um, has just blown up. And I realized that this could be another avenue for me. And so I continue still I'm doing trainings, but also wanted to have a platform where I could show up authentically as myself in outdoor spaces, talk about disparities that we see, talk about things that are real to me, and hopefully provide some inspiration for people who are like, that space isn't for me. So when I go out, you know, I wear my head wrap, I wear my lipstick, earrings, I dress how I wanna dress and I enjoy the outdoors in ways that I wanna enjoy it. And um, that's how Queen Work was born. This idea of the way that we can start to make progress is to keep widening environmental engagement narratives and the way that people use the outdoors and experience it. And how do we uh, change it from this narrative that you have to look one way and do these certain activities to be considered someone who's an outdoor enthusiast. Through Queen Work, Parker is changing outdoor narratives by authentically engaging her audience in difficult conversations that place the legacy of structural racism front and center. In her July 29th Instagram post, Parker addressed the myth that Black people don't like to do outdoor activities. For instance, she reminds her audience that historically the Black community has not had access to safe swimming spaces. So let's go back a couple of centuries for a quick history refresher. In the Plessy versus Ferguson landmark decision of 1896, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that segregation laws did not violate the U.S. Constitution as long as facilities were separate but equal. Yet, the Black community still didn't have access to separate pools. And when they did, they were unsafe spaces, oftentimes without lifeguards. And at times, Black swimmers, especially Black protesters conducting swim-ins, would be met with acid as white hotel or pool owners attempted to force Black youth out of the water. This ruling gave way to Jim Crow laws and separate but equal became commonplace well into the mid 20th century. In a recent REI Instagram Live, Rue Map, founder of Outdoor Afro, also reminds us that to this day, this legacy of Jim Crow has created a crisis within the Black community. As CDC statistics show that Black children drown at five times the rate of white children ages five to 19. The cost of swim lessons, access to pools in the inner city, and so forth, have contributed to this gross inequity. Parker reminds us that there's a Black community memory of trauma in outdoor spaces. So I ask Parker, how do you reclaim the outdoors as a site of healing individual and or collective trauma? I think getting into outdoor spaces is, is definitely, it's an act of resistance. Like, 
people feel like, oh, the, you know, I get people who are like, the outdoors is for everyone. What are you even talking about? What are you trying to say? The trees are racist, right? And no, of course, I'm not saying the trees are racist, but y'all are. And we go into these spaces and we have these experiences. So they're present day experiences. They're historical experiences. People in my family told me, you don't go in the woods by yourself, right? And they recounted this, this horrific legacy of lynching, you know, people being dragged into the woods for uh, never heard from again, right? And then there's also this, um, this fear of being in spaces that are far away from, from other people and um, what could be you know, done with, done to you. And so there's a historical legacy um, of, in the stories that we tell, there's a historical legacy in the lack of access. You know, we think about, oh, when the national park system was created, what Ken Burns calls America's best idea, greatest idea, right? During that time, we were actively stealing land from its native inhabitants. And we were creating spaces where black people couldn't go in some cases by law, you know, because of segregation and uh, so e separate but equal was not equal. And so towns would, did, did not, they would have, they had a pool, they oftentimes didn't have a black pool. The black pool, if it was there, oftentimes was not lifeguarded. Um, people would do things like pour acid into the pool so people couldn't use it. Um, and so just like terror attached to your use of the outdoors being passed down. Then we have incidents like earlier this year, a man, and he was in Michigan, got into an altercation with a group of uh, Black teens uh, on a beach, told them that they did not belong there. You don't belong here. What are you doing here? Uh, it escalated. He ended up breaking the jaw of one of the Black teens with a bike lock, right? And so even today, you go into spaces and there are real things. There are trauma that happen. I get microaggressions um, in these spaces. People who don't, you know, who are just like, I, I don't know how many times I've been asked, is, is this my first hike? Like people always, I'm, I hike all the time, but they assume, right? And so when we go in the outdoor spaces, right, it is reclaiming that we belong in this space. It's an act of resistance. And let me tell you, black people do get outside, right? Um, it's just different. Like you get a lot of group activities. You get people who do picnics and barbecuing and love being in outdoor spaces, but want to do it in a way that they can feel safe, right? Because they're not sure what they're going to, to face. And so, I think it's so important to acknowledge that it's not like, oh, black people just don't like being outside because that's how they're made as, as people. No, you know, when you have had so much attached to your use of the outdoors, right? And this memory of historical trauma, then it takes a conscious effort to get past all the messages that this isn't a space where you belong. 
right? And so, yeah, I think that it's important to talk about that and important to think about how do we, um, it, that it's not that Black people don't like outside. It's not that they don't uh, go outside. They're not going into places that they don't feel welcome, right? And how do we work up around that? This long history of the Black community feeling unsafe and unwelcome in public spaces continues to be a motivating factor for the work that Parker is currently doing as COO of Inclusive Journeys, a tech company with a mission to create data-driven economic incentives for businesses to be more inclusive and welcoming. As you listen to Parker, you will hear her mention the Green Book, which was first published in 1937 by postal service worker and travel writer, Victor Hugo Green. The Green Book was a travel guide to help African-American motorists navigate the dangers and challenges of traveling while Black in the Jim Crow era. The travel guide listed businesses that served Black people, and it also listed sundown towns, which were hostile towns where it was unsafe for Black people to visit after sundown. Oftentimes, they were allowed to work in these towns, but were not allowed to reside within these all-white municipalities, as discriminatory housing laws and practices were set in place to keep Black, Indigenous people of color from becoming homeowners. And so Parker shares with us how she and her business partner, Crystal Egley, are going beyond the Green Book to create a guide that has the safety of all people in mind. Yeah, I'm so excited about our work at Inclusive Journeys. And I just, um, I never thought that I would be where I am right now. Like, I've had a 24 year career in conservation, outdoor recreation, natural resources, and have loved it, right? I love kayaking, I love giving bike tours and uh, teaching about nature. Um, and I'm leaving this job that uh, seems like if you were in the right outdoor recreation job, right? It's like a vacation every day. Um, you work where people vacation. And so leaving this type of job to go into um, another job, tech startup, right? Which I never thought I'd be doing, but I think it's one of the most important things that I could be doing right now. And so Inclusive Journeys, it the idea for it will be two years old, or us working on it will be two years old come um, later this year. And uh, Crystal Egley, who is uh, the other co-founder, um, had the original idea. And I remember driving home one day, Crystal calls me and she says, you know, I have this idea, um, but I don't know if it's any good. And I wanna share it with someone, um, but I feel like it has to be top secret because you know, I don't have any money to do it right now. I just want someone to tell me if it's a good idea. So uh, Crystal, um, who is a hunter and used to work for Colorado Parks and Wildlife, you know, had uh, spent a lot of time learning how to hunt and uh, falling in love with it. And her hunting mentor, you know, was sharing with her all of the places that she could go and hunt. And Crystal was relaying to them 
that she didn't feel comfortable going to all those places. Like she wasn't going to show up just any place as a black woman uh, carrying a gun, right? Because she wouldn't know what could happen to her. And her mentor asked her, um, how did she know like, where's the data? What do you mean you're not going to be safe, right? Where is the data that this is an issue? And so this sparked an idea within Crystal. And she started thinking about that and thinking about how do I know what places are safe? And also started thinking about the, uh, the Green Book, the original Green Book. And if folks don't know what that is, it was... Um, a guide for black motorists that was created by a postal serviceman called Victor Green. And it was uh, published until I think the early 1960s. And people, it would list the safe places that people could travel, especially during Jim Crow and segregation, because you didn't know which towns like had a place, a hotel that you could stay in. You didn't know which towns were sundown towns, which if you were there after sundown, there's a possibility of you losing your life. Like if they caught you, then you would be one of those people they dragged out into the woods. Um, and so she thought of this idea of, oh, like the Green Book list, safe and welcoming spaces. And it stopped, right, when segregation and Jim Crow and that was made illegal with the thought that, oh, we don't need this anymore. But here we are, you know, 60 years later, and we, we do. And so her idea was to make this a digital version of the Green Book to list safe and welcoming spaces. And I was like, Crystal, that is genius. And so um, we get off the phone and like a couple of weeks later, she calls me again and she's like, I think I'm going to do this. And would, would you wanna go in with me and help me create this? And I was like, yeah. And so we had our first meeting and I was like, Crystal, you know, I love this idea. And I think it can be so much bigger because I do these uh, DEI trainings with Eco-Inclusive and uh, businesses are asking for data, right? They really want the data. They don't know which community, which communities they're serving well and which communities they're not serving well. And they want to be able to have some data to show them which is the right way to go. And so um, we had this conversation about how we could expand this and also offer not only information about safe and welcoming spaces, um, for folks, but also give businesses the data that they need to be more inclusive. So we realized that, you know, there was something really needed with this and that we could also not only provide data for people to have safe and welcoming spaces that they could go and visit, but also provide data for businesses to be able to understand what communities they're serving really well and what communities they need help with, right? So we started working on what this could be and uh, trying to fundraise for it and figure out a web developer. And then also realizing that we needed to expand like the original green book was uh, specifically for black folks. And we know that there are so many groups of people that um, 
you know, regularly experience uh, discrimination and that we wanted to provide something that not only spoke to black folks, but, you know, folks with disabilities, people in the LGBTQIA2 um, 2S community, um, all of, you know, these different intersections, which you can, of course, find in the black community, but, you know, intersect with so many other groups. And so this thought that we could become the a review platform for inclusion. We've got plenty of review platforms for customer service, but creating a review platform for inclusion that would hold businesses not only accountable, but give them an economic incentive to be include to be inclusive, right? Once people see which businesses are really taking this seriously, we can support them. And this isn't just for people who experience discrimination. We need allies, right, to come and also spend their money in those spaces so that business can businesses can see, oh, you know, inclusion, there is a benefit to being welcoming and open to everyone, right? So we're so excited about this. And, you know, I say, gosh, I, yeah, I would much rather be kayaking every day. But this work, I think, is the most important work that I can be doing to save the planet. Because when we think about uh, conservation is not inclusive, right? Just the businesses in general are not inclusive and they don't have the data that they need to make the change. And because they're not inclusive, not everyone's at the table to have these conversations about how are we going to stop climate change? How are we going to save the planet? We don't have everyone there, right? And that lack of inclusion, that lack of diversity, I think is one of the major factors as to why we're not moving forward, right? We need everyone at the table. And so even though I'd rather be doing that, I think this is my most crucial benefit to conservation efforts. As we continue, Parker shares a little about the launch of the Inclusive Guide in the Denver metro area and also shares the plans for a national launch of the app. We launched in the Denver metro area and we have uh, people signing up. People can still sign up to be a part of beta testing if they go to inclusiveguide.com. And we're bringing people in little by little to test out the site and all of its features. And then so we can figure out what we need to grow and change and do better with. So we're really excited that um, we were launched. We launched on Juneteenth. That was so significant to me and Crystal. And we just had a day of going around to different sites and talking about um, talking about the guide and hitting all of these different identities. We started out at a local uh, cafe, black owned cafe and uh, talked about an inclusive community engagement. We went over to um, this really great gift shop uh, called Hope Tank um, that's local here, but you can find them online. And they're the, a gift shop it's, it's owned by a white woman, uh, but she's a Erica a writer, but she's a, a former social worker. 
and she believes so deeply in inclusion and uh, inclusive business practices that she's embedded it in all of her her work and so uh getting we had an interview with eric Ryder at hope tank then we went over um to a local gay bar and we talked about uh uh, affinity spaces and the importance of having spaces that are that where you can meet others of your identity and having safe spaces to go. I was talking to our accountant the other day. I was like, you're going to see a charge for, for a drag show at X bar. I promise it is work related. Then we went um, and then we went to a, a local art studio that only employs folks with disabilities because people with disabilities have the you know highest rate of unemployment, a minority group with the highest rate of unemployment. And it provides um, a place for folks to have their artwork, get money. Um, and we talked about the disability community. Um, and so we just had this day, then we ended the day at a local indigenous restaurant and met with one of our indigenous friends to talk about uh, decolonization and um, land back and indigenous sovereignty um, and rights. And so we, and we had a crew, a camera crew following us all day long. So uh, we will have a video coming out uh, about those days and those different issues. You know, So even in our launch, we wanted to show how much we uh, believe in this work and in the community and in the change that we can make together. And it just was a wonderful day. And we're so excited to be getting the message out and the word out and to get people to sign up and to use the platform. Um, we need everyone, allies, on that platform, people, I have folks who are white who are like, is this for me, you know? And I'm like, yes, it's for you. Like, you know, um, we need everyone on there. We need everyone to use it because we need to know, we need some balancing points. Like you need to know when you walk into a place, is this really, uh, bias that is affecting the way that they're serving me? Or is it bad customer service? Are they having a hard day, right? And so that's why we need our allies and people who may not face as much discrimination, you know, um, to go and use the site so we can have those different data points. So yeah, we're really excited about it. Once the beta testing is done with um, the Denver area, then would you move forward with opening it nationally? Yeah, the goal is to um, start to bring it from city to city. So a little bit like the Craigslist model, right? Craigslist doesn't really work unless you have people, a certain number of people within that location using it, right? It doesn't work if you go on and there's blank message boards. And so our idea is to start to get people in certain areas to really use it. So we're getting the valuable data onto the site, right? And then start to expand it uh, from different cities. So our, our goal is to start in a few cities and then to go nationwide. Intersectionality is the heart of Parker's body of work. 
1989, legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw published an article that introduced intersectionality as a prism for understanding how we experience discriminations based on a number of identities that we embody, be that gender, sexuality, race, ethnicity, religion, and citizenship status, to name a few. Crenshaw argues that our intersections make us more vulnerable to certain discriminations, and therefore we must always be aware of the context in which the discrimination is happening. As we walk into a space, whether that be outdoors or indoors, we have to ask ourselves, what type of discrimination is happening? What are the policies in place? What are the institutional structures that play a role in the exclusion of some people and not others? This is a framework that informs the inclusive guide. So I ask Parker, what have been the most challenging and rewarding experiences of centering intersectionality in your work? You know, um, it's interesting. I think when we talk about inclusion and we talk about bias and privilege and all of this uh, work, there are some people that feel like, oh, this isn't about me, right? Like, oh, I'm not a Black person. I'm not a person of color. And so they automatically turn off. Um, but this work includes everyone because we all have different identities, right? In case in, um, in our beings and who we are. And so one, I think having folks understand that, you know, there are so many different intersections of your identity that you um, are exposed to or go through day in and day out. And what is most important about discrimination or something that you might uh, face in a space has to do with what identity is most um, prevalent or valued in that moment. Um, and so some of those conversations, right? Getting people to understand. And then I think also that understanding that yes, this is intersectional work, right? And that we all bring these multiple viewpoints and that my viewpoint is limited, right? Like I've got these identities, but they're not every identity. And that I need to have, make sure that there are so many people at my table that can speak to their own experiences and so, you know, uh, we've been really kind of working as a team to make sure that we have the representation needed to create something, you know, that is really going to be meaningful. And it's also why the beta version is taking some time because we want to be able to make sure that we have heard from lots of different people. So we're bringing these groups in small groups at a time for our user experience um, developer to work with them and really hear their voices, really hear what is it that they need in a site like this, right? And how we can make sure our work really honors that. As I listened to Parker share the challenges of centering intersectionality in her work, I was reminded of her May 14th Instagram post where she stated, quote, we are not separate from our histories and the histories of our ancestors. In order to deal with this current system, we have to recognize how it was set up and own the parts of our ancestors in that system and work to break it down together, end quote. 
And so here's how we can help to break it down together and support Parker and Crystal to move this important work forward. I ask you to consider making a monetary contribution to the Inclusive Guides GoFundMe. If you're unable to give in this way, please share this information with friends, colleagues, and or loved ones who may have the means and or networks to help. As Parker reminds us, only 1% of tech startups are led by Black people. And Black women startups and new businesses continue to be the most underfunded. So it's critical that we spread the word and help to amplify their voices. And please remember that this work includes us all. As we come to a close, I ask Parker, how do you experience ancestral guidance in your day-to-day life? She begins to share, she starts by centering the women in her ancestral lineage. You know, it's been, my mom um, passed away over 10 years ago. And uh, my grandmother, a long time before that, both my grandmothers. And they were such powerful women powerful figures in in my life and you know I try to do things that I feel like would make their legacies proud um it's really hard to lose your mother and you know I'm I'm 42 so I feel like I was young when I when I lost her you know and I just want um I want to be able to share with her this work, but I have to just kind of realize that her power resides within me. Um, And the way, the reason that I've come to where I am today is because of her and so many, many before me, you know? I often think of a story that is uh, told in my my family on my mother's side that um, it's like my great 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 grandfather or great great grandfather, um, you know, uh, his parents were escaped slaves, and as they were traveling, running away, traveling, uh, he was a baby and uh, strapped on his mother and he just had a really hard time and and cried, cried very loud, baby cries the whole way. And the group of escaped slaves had a conversation about whether or not they should kill the baby because they were gonna be found out um, that his cries they just knew would draw the slave catcher to them. And it was decided that if they killed the baby, his mother would not be able to to survive. And so she um, nursed him under a bush until danger had passed. And I think about, I think about that story and I think about, you know, how he was their only child and how if not for that story of, of survival, right? I would not be here. I wouldn't be here today. And so I think that, you know, there is 
survival within me. There is joy as well within me. And I just have to believe that my ancestors are, are watching me and watching this work and cheering, cheering me on. Before signing off, Parker and I delve into the fun five, and she leaves us with words of wisdom to guide you back to your healing nature. So number one, what are your favorite three things in nature and what does it tell us about you? Oh, goodness. Favorite three things in nature. Um, I, I love trees and I'm not, I'm not good at naming things, which is why I, I did not stay in my pre-med program long, but I, I love being around trees and the energy that comes from them and the breath and the air. And I named my kids after trees and uh, cypress, cedar and conifer. And I, so I love trees. Um, what did it, what does that tell you about me? I don't know. I'm, I'm strong, hard, hard headed as well. Um, I've got deep roots. Uh, I love turtles. I have a, um, uh, goodness, I love reptiles in general, but turtles are my favorite reptile. I'm going to say, I'm going to give like reptiles and amphibians. Let's just say reptiles and amphibians, trees, reptiles, and amphibians. And um, I love the way that um, they are a part, reptiles and amphibians are a part of their, their surrounding. I feel like they truly, like they live off of the, the warmth of their surroundings. And when it's not warm, they go dormant. And so they are truly like just in tune with the, with the planet, right? They're not up like us mammals, just like making heat, right? They, they're in tune and they, they live with the planet and they go to sleep when the planet goes to sleep and they're up and active when the planet is warm and awake. And I just think that's really uh, cool about uh, them. And I don't know what it tells you about. <laughs> about me I'd much rather have a reptile than a mammal as a pet so maybe that tells you something about me I said I've always said that they were like I don't do well with house plants but they move just enough that I want to be like I can feed them they don't need too much attention like I used to have an iguana and she like preferred me to like not mess with her <laughs> and, and that was okay right and so I love those answers. All right. Which of your ancestors would you most like to meet? You know, maybe the, the mother of my great, great, great grandfather. Seems like she's an amazing woman and had a lot of tenacity and love. And um, she, she escaped. She made it through. She made a new life. And I think that's really powerful. Agreed. How would you like to spend your elder years? Oh goodness! I hope I get real old, and I want—I want to bug my kids. My dad lives with us now, and it's great. And I keep telling my kids, um, you know, that that this is going to be me. And like, I want to be surrounded by family. My oldest daughter, though, like, has my dad has helped. After my mom died, my dad came to live with us and helped take care of all three of my kids. Um, and so me and my husband feel really blessed. Um, 
but my oldest daughter sometimes asks me, she's like, okay, I'm going to have 10 kids and you'll live with me and take care of them all, won't you? And I said, no, I'll take care of the first three. Grandpa took care of three. I'll take care of the first three. But I just hope to be with family and, you know, to have enough security and safety uh, to enjoy those times. I love that. If you could choose to give human beings one virtue, which would you choose? I think um, empathy for others, like how you feel for your yourself. You know, the ability, I think people cut off and not only empathy for others, but empathy for nature empathy for the planet. So other people, the planet, nature, I think we cut off that empathy and that's what allows us to do things that hurt others and hurt nature. And so if you felt for others, like you feel for yourself, you know, I wish that everyone had that. Oh, that's beautiful. All right, and the last one, what space and place most dramatically influenced your life? Space and place, huh, goodness, this is so difficult. I've lived in so many spaces and places. Um, you know, they say like home, home is where your story begins. And I feel like, um, Goodness, and I don't know like how to say this without sounding really cheesy because I'm having trouble um, saying one space, right? But I think my life trajectory um, kind of changed or became solidified uh, with my my husband. Um, you know, we are we're just a, a team in all things. And we have lived in lots of different places. I can't even, like the count, I think last was eight states, um, but have along this way kind of built our hearth and our home and our stories together and have supported one another. Like, I don't think I would be where I am without that like strong support, family support. So where can our listeners find you and how can they be of service to you in advancing your work in the outdoors? Yeah, that sounds great. Well, um, they can always follow me on social media. Um, they can find me at Queen Work and Queen is spelt interestingly. It's K-W-E-E-N-W-E-R-K, Queen Work, um, on TikTok, Instagram, uh, Facebook, Twitter. I'm even on Snapchat. <laughs> so they uh, find, find me out. And uh, I always love having new folks to interact with. And they can find Eco Inclusive on Facebook. And they can find Inclusive Journeys across all social media platforms as well. Um, or Inclusive Guide 
uh, we've, we've switched over because we're producing the inclusive guide so they can find inclusive guide across all social media platforms except for Facebook where it is inclusive journeys. Uh, they can look up information about the guide at inclusiveguide.com. They can look up information about Queenwork um, at queenwork.com. And if they want to support my work, I do have a Patreon page for Queenwork. Um, so we always love to pick up new people. We have quarterly conversations. It's really great. Um, and if they uh, would like to support inclusive journeys and the inclusive guide we still have a gofundme and we are trying to raise this money to keep this work going and so would love for people to look up um, our gofundme page and support us there awesome so we will link all of those social media platforms the websites and everything on there excellent so, awesome and then what parting words would you like to share with our listeners to support them in learning unlearning or relearning how to center healing in their lives yeah you know um we have we've got so much noise in our day-to-day -day. there's so many influences that come um into our lives and I encourage people to, to think outside of those influences and to think about the things that are most impactful to them and for them um, and how they can really enact change in, in their lives while showing up as their authentic selves. So that is, I think, what I would leave. Thank you so much. And I want to thank you for taking the time. I know you're so busy with so many different amazing things that are going on. Well, thank you. And I appreciate having this opportunity to talk with you. As I reflect on my time with Parker, it is clear to me that she is rooted in the sacredness of who she is. As she began to share her story with us, specifically how she came to establish a career in the outdoors, she stated, quote, I felt like I needed to change myself a bit to do my job well and that I had to act in a certain way that kind of aligned with the traditional image of someone in the outdoors, end quote. For a moment in time, as a young professional, this meant letting go of parts of herself, the head wrap, the earrings, the vibrant colors and patterns of her clothing, those childhood memories of picking up cans with her father, picnics with her mother at the Bronx Community College. Yet, as Parker reflected on her ancestral lineage, she realized that her connection to the land, to nature, was always there embedded in her very being as a descendant of the Gula Geechee people. In reclaiming this history, she started to heal to create wholeness within herself and realized that her biggest contribution to this work, to the world, was in showing up as herself. As I see it, Parker's healing nature lies in her ability to unapologetically speak truth to all people, to show up as her authentic self. Through her social media platforms, she is giving voice to the Black collective memory of trauma in the outdoors. And yes, to show up authentically for ourselves and each other takes work. It means having the courage to let go of decades of social conditioning. But ultimately, that is Parker's call to action. She asks us to drown out the noise and to enact change as our authentic selves. She asks you to love the planet, to save the planet, by becoming the best version of yourself. Thank you all so much for listening and joining us around this digital campfire.
Thank you all so much for sticking with us through the entire episode. In the show notes, you will find Parker's social media handles, websites, and resources to learn more about the Gula Geechee people and the Green Book. To remain connected, please follow us on Instagram at underscore yourhealingnature or email me at info at yourhealingnature.com. Lastly, I'd love for this podcast to be as collaborative as possible. Therefore, BIPOC community, if there's a topic, theme, or guest you'd love to hear from as it relates to healing trauma in the outdoors and or rethinking the outdoors, please let me know. Mil gracias. Until next time, keep walking in sunshine. Oh, no, no.